0: So we're in Job, and we're in chapter 18, and this is Bildad's second speech. One of the things that I like to do, and I will sort of do it every time we meet. So those of you who have been really faithful will have heard this a lot. One of the problems that people have with Job is he goes through a really really rough time, and it is all at God's behest. I mean, God doesn't do the actual stuff to him, Satan does. But it's because God has got a wager, if you will, with Satan that Job is not going to buckle under all the pressure. Of course, Job doesn't know about that. So Job just regards all of this as terribly unjust stuff that is going on in his life. And he thinks God has caused it, which, in a sense, he has. And people who study Job have real problems getting their minds around all the suffering that Job does at God's behest because it starts off at the beginning of the book saying Job is a righteous man. So there isn't anything that Job has done to deserve all this. And and that bothers a lot of people. The way I have come to look at it, which I find useful, is God has decided to do Job a great honor. Because at the end of the day, in addition to having all of his worldly stuff restored to him, Job is going to have an entire book of the Bible written about him. And other than Daniel and Esther, I don't know of anybody else that does, know the others. But the idea of having an entire book of the Bible written about you is, I am reasonably sure from God's perspective, a tremendous honor. So from God's perspective which Job doesn't know. That's part of the book, is Job doesn't know what God's perspective is in all this. From God's perspective, the worldly affliction that Job goes through is going to be far outweighed by the rewards that he is going to get at the end of the exercise. And so if you look at it that way, then it all makes sense. I've had lots of people that have taught this book And they really can't get their mind around what's going on. So I think, at least for me, that perspective helps. So anyway, we are on maybe the fourth or the fifth soliloquy here. Each of his three friends speaks twice. This is Bildad's second shot at it. And the only reason this book is interesting is because Job is a wise man and his friends are wise men. So everybody in this book is what we would call a biblical scholar, if you will. The Bible hadn't been written at that point, but they would be biblically wise men. And that's really important because these are a bunch of dudes hanging around the 7-Eleven, and, hey, dude, what are you doing? I don't know. What are you doing? there? If they were that class of people, this would not be interesting at all. They have to be men of substance in order for this to work. And if Job knew what was going on in heaven, you would have a completely different book. Because then it would be a question of, Okay, Job, are you going to stand your ground knowing that God has put you in this position for a purpose? And that would be also a good book, but that's not what this book is. The question is, are you going to stand your ground not realizing what God has done? And that's a different book. All right, so chapter 18. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of its place? So what's going on before is his friends have sequentially given him proverbial wisdom. The book reads very much like Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. So they've been giving him proverbial wisdom which they believe is useful. And from their point of view, hey, you must have done something to deserve this. And so they trot out all these Proverbs, indicating that the wise will prosper, the wicked will fail, You've all read Proverbs, you all know what they sound like. And Job is saying to them, guys, I know as much of this as you do. I have considered my situation in light of the same wisdom you are trying to foist on me, and it doesn't apply in my case. So what they're saying is, so what makes you so smart? That's what Bill that is saying. So how long will you hunt words? Consider and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? Job is saying, all this stuff that you're giving me is of no use to me whatsoever. And oh, by the way, I'm as smart as you are. And so what Bilbat is coming back and saying is, why do you think we're stupid? What makes you think you're smarter than we are? That's the tone of the conversation. In verse 4, you who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you or rock be removed out of its place? I would suggest that's probably a way of saying what makes you think that Somebody ought to arrange heaven and earth for you. What makes you so special is essentially what it's saying there. Verse 5. Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. So we're talking about what happens to the wicked in light of what's going on with Job. So what he's saying is, based on what's happening to you, This proverb about the wicked not prospering seems to apply. Seven. His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel, a snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground, a trap for him in the path. So this guy is going along in his arrogance. In other words, he's wicked. He's wicked. And he doesn't think that there's going to be recompense for his actions. If you were driving down the highway and you had a state patrolman sitting in the right-hand seat of your car, you'd be really well-behaved. Most of us violate the traffic regulations when we think that there's no chance we'll be caught. So what he's saying here is the wicked have determined as a rule for their lives that they're never going to get caught trap seized by his strong steps are shortened and his own schemes throw him down. So this is again talking about the wicked who is going about in his arrogance, striding about the earth, and he's gonna be caught in his own snare. And again, this is all right out of the property. So verse 11, Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished and his calamity is ready for his stumbling. He consumes the parts of his skin The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. This is all obviously poetic. And what it's saying is when things start to unravel, they really unravel. All of this is, in fact, directly applicable to Job's circumstances. Verse 14. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and brought to the king of terrors. In his tent dwells that which is none of his sulfur is scattered over his habitation so in his tent dwells that which is none of his somebody else has taken over his property as opposed to his own children and his own family verse 16 his roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above his memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street the point is he leaves two legacies he first off leaves of course the legacy of the book but he will also have a second family. So he will have both physical progeny that he leaves as well as the legacy of the book. But the point that Bildad is making here is, for the wicked, there is no place left for him when he dies. Verse 18, He, is, he the wicked, is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. They of the West are appalled at his day, and horror seizes him from the East. Surely, such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. So again, this business about posterity and a legacy. And that goes right to everything that Job has built up over his entire life has been destroyed. Property, family, Everything He is in a position where he can leave no posterity. His friends start off trying to help. But as he continues to insist, they're getting chapped. So now chapter 19. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? So Job is insisting on his righteousness, verse 4, and even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. The way I would describe it is everybody sins, everybody makes mistakes, but what's happening to me is not anywhere near proportional to the minor sins that I may have committed. And again, this is sort of an article of faith of much of the Christian church, it's sin sin. One is just like another sin and the Bible does not support that. David, for example, says, don't hold the sins of my youth against me. Everybody's stupid when they're young. It goes with being young. It's called a a young fool. And you grow out of it if you're well taught and well reared. But the idea that every sin is a death penalty is is nonsense. It's not true. 19.5, if indeed you magnify yourselves against me, and make my disgrace an argument against me know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me first off he's saying you magnify yourselves against me as you are assuming positions of authority which is what I was talking about earlier I can examine me for sin but to have somebody come in and say well you must have sin is out of place unless of course I ask if you ask somebody for discerning prayer or somebody has a gift of discernment and you ask for it, that's certainly appropriate. But for somebody just to walk up to you and say, wow, your life has turned to mud, you must be X, Y, or Z. That's out of place. And so you magnified yourselves against me and you make my disgrace an argument against me. In other words, the whole basis of your argument against me is the fact that I am going through this right now. You know nothing about me except that this is what's happened to me and you've made that your primary argument as opposed to it where if somebody observes that you habitually engage in Lashon Hara for example and stuff starts happening to you and somebody who says well you know you really got an evil tongue on you that can be useful and what he's saying is the only thing that you have got against me is the fact that I'm going through this you know nothing else about my circumstances and you can't give me specific counsel. You're just counseling me based on my circumstances. So know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Job is not privy to the conversation that happened between God and Satan. So from Job's perspective, God is the source of all, what of course he is, but indirectly. Verse 7. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, But there is no justice. So what he's saying is, I am having a crime perpetrated against me. I am being mugged in the street. And I am crying out violence, murder. I'm being attacked. And there's nobody to help me. He has walled up my way so I cannot pass. And he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. And my hope has he pulled up like a tree. So he said, God is doing this, and not only God doing this to me, but he has set up circumstances so there's no way I can turn to escape it. There's no escape route for me. From a mugger I could run because I can see the mugger and I know what the other direction is. I can't do that here because he's walled me up on every side. 11. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and have camped around my tent. And again, the whole purpose of a siege in a city is a besieging army surrounds the city so people can't get out and can't come in. So people can't come in to bring you food and reinforcements. People can't get out to escape. That's the whole purpose of a siege. And what he's saying here is, there's no place I can go. Verse 13, he has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. I don't know whether brothers is literal or figurative. He's going to talk about in just a minute, the children of my mother, which is biological brothers. So this may be brothers in the faith. And of course, his brothers are sitting there around him, and they are estranged from him. They are sympathetic, but they are not helpful. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maid servants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. So everybody that he used to have as a support system is now estranged from him. He has no servants. He has no relatives. He has no friends. Because in his distress, they have all backed away from him. For example, his servants don't regard him as worthy of obedience anymore. Verse 17. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. So my breath is strange to my wife, we are not intimate, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother, which would be his biological brothers and sisters. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk about me. All my intimate friends abhor me and those whom I loved have turned against me. Everybody that I counted on all my life, for companionship, for succor, for help, for anything, have all turned against me. Verse 20, My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. And remember we talked last time about fat. The idea in many, many, many societies is that being pleasingly plump is a sign of prosperity. I I mentioned to you that you've all seen Federal on the Roof. And one of the things that Tevye said when he wishes he were a rich man, he wishes that his wife had a proper double chin. Which is to say, he wishes that he could, he was prosperous enough that she would be pleasingly plump, And everybody would be able to see that he's prosperous. And a little bit of fat is a defense against starvation. That's what your body does. He's lost all that. He is now skin and bones. 21. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O my friends. For the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? In other words, God has done all of these things to me, and you are piling on, as opposed to comforting me. Now, 23 through 29 are actually... um, very, very commonly used at funerals. Great passage of scripture. I'll go ahead and read it, and then come back and unpack it. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Whom I shall see for myself, and my eye shall behold, and not another. My heart fates within me. This is a statement of the coming of Messiah. It is a statement of resurrection. It is a statement of eternal life. I use it very often when I do funerals. It's very commonly used for that. But what Job is saying here, in addition to his belief in the Messiah, belief in a resurrection belief in life afterward the other thing he is saying is that he has in fact faith in God because remember the original wager with Satan was Satan said if you put him in my hands and you take your protection away from him he will curse you to your face that's the bet and so Job here It's a ringing statement of faith in God. It's a ringing statement of faith in the Messiah, and it's a ringing statement of faith in the resurrection. And in fact, when we get there at the end, it will say Job had restored double everything that had been taken away, but he only has 10 children. He had 10 children before that died. He has 10 children at the end of the book, yet it says everything was restored to him double. It's another statement of the resurrection. He has 20 children. I'd say it's a great book. Theology is wonderful. So I'm all the way down now to verse 28. If you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword. That you may know there is a judgment. Not sure what that means quite frankly. I will take a couple of guesses, and if somebody's got a better guess, by all means jump in here. He is speaking to his friends. He is not at this point speaking to God. One of the things that happens as we go through this book is he goes in and out speaking to God or speaking to his friends. And you sort of have to pay attention because very often his focus will shift and he'll start talking to his friends and he'll shift and he'll be talking to God. This appears all to be to his friends. And so if you say how we will pursue him and the root of the matter is found in him that is what his friends are saying. The reason you got these problems is because of you. The root of the matter is found in you. So what he's saying is if you say how we will pursue him and the root of the matter is found in him be afraid of the sword. the wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. And what he's saying is, you have not comforted me, you have not been of any use to me. In fact, you are making my situation worse because you have taken away from me what I thought was going to be support, sympathy, and comfort. And you have taken that away from me. And understand that you are not being righteous as you do this. And so in your righteousness, where you have assisted in inflicting me, understand that there will be a reward for that. And of course, we see that that's the case at the end of the book. Recompense then, Reward, recompense. Reward does have a positive connotation. Recompense is probably better. So I'm going to stop there. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com slash purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.